Please turn with me in the word of God to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. We finally got to 2 Samuel. And uh, in the original there was no break. So that's an artificial thing that's been put in there. And in fact, uh, it is also named the second book of the kings. Uh, So uh, it's a section of a book. And then 1 Kings and 2 Kings were the third book of Kings and the fourth book of Kings. 2 Samuel then, and we'll read the first, uh, some, uh, any part of the first chapter down to the end of verse 16. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people are also fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? The young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish is come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and had brought them hither unto my Lord. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them. Likewise all the men that were with him and they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. David said unto the young man that told him Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth has testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Amen. We thank the Lord for this reading of his word. Let's again bow our heads and ask help in the proclamation of it. We pray, Father, for help in the preaching this evening and help also in the hearing. We pray, Lord, that thou wast prepare our hearts to receive, that thou wast prepare my heart uh, to proclaim forth, but to receive also. Lord, thou art able to speak many things to us, even as we would seek to teach we pray, Lord, that thou would bring the lesson home. Lord, bless them. We ask thee and continue with us this evening in the Saviour's precious and worthy name. Amen.
So here we have uh, an account then of the uh, death of Saul, which is given by this young man and the Malachite. It's a different account to that which we might read from chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And when we look at that, we will see in the first uh, few verses there, in verse 1 uh, through to verse 6, perhaps we'll just read that again together. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men that same day together. So we can see that there is a difference in these two accounts. Uh, the one speaks of Saul having uh, escaped so, so much from the, uh, from the Philistines and that he was hit of the archers and that he fell there and wished to die lest he should be abused by the Philistines, that they should take him and abuse him. We thought about this the last time and we thought about Saul's pride and Saul's um, condition before the Lord. Uh, our purpose tonight is not to go over that again, but to see what this Amalekite has to say. And I, I want to consider it under three heads, as quite often we do. Uh, first of all, his ethnicity. He was an Amalekite. Secondly, his enterprise. Uh, this is concerning his, uh, his account uh, and what we might learn from it. And then thirdly, his end, uh, an assessment of that account, an assessment of the man. His ethnicity. He is an, an Amalekite. His ethnicity, well, the ethnicity in the scripture, of course, is, is quite interesting and perhaps uh, has uh, something to do with, uh, with the view of many about nationhood. Um, and even in these days, we know that there are still uh, many who consider people from other nations to be subservient or uh, not as good or just different from us and is termed racism in these days. Of course, as Christians, we don't believe in races apart from one, which is the human race. Uh, we are all of one blood. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 17, uh, we are God made of one blood, all the nations of the earth. Uh, we are different families, uh, but nevertheless of one blood. But perhaps there is something, considering in this nation anyway, uh, the word of God has been uh, well known and well preached to our forefathers and many people, of course, would go to church. There was a time when it was illegal not to go to church. So everybody heard. And even to this day, we, we still sometimes use the terminology where we might call somebody a Philistine because they don't ap appreciate the finer things of life. Um, we've been told recently, perhaps from archaeology and, and the like, that the Philistines weren't uh, quite uh, in, in that vein at all. But that's the way the people of kind of taken it they were different and so that kind of an ethnicity is is seen in the old testament 
Uh, although, of course, when we come uh, to the book of Isaiah, it speaks about the Messiah coming and that the gospel will go, through, go forth into all the world and to all the Gentiles and unto him should the Gentiles seek. In the New Testament, we know that the gospel went forth into all the world. It went to the Romans, it went to the Greeks, it went to the barbarians, it went to everyone uh, because all were equal in the eyes of God. And we know that that is the truth from the beginning of the scriptures also, because when God created Adam and Eve, all the nations of the earth came from them. There was no Israel until uh, we, we know that, uh, that um, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's when Israel began. So before that, there was uh, no difference in the sense uh, of uh, a particular nation set apart. Uh, all the Gentiles were just Gentiles. Of course, we see the family of Abraham, how the Lord chose him, brought him out of Ur of the, Chaldee, uh, Ur of the Chaldees, and how that he blessed him and blessed those who followed up on after him. Uh, so this kind of an ethnicity becomes a, 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 an overarching idea of a certain group of people, uh, which has been disbanded uh, now in our thinking and in the New Testament thinking, so the last 2,000 years, anyway, uh, there, is, there is no difference. There is neither Greek nor Jew, as the Apostle Paul says. But still, in the Old Testament, this was the view. And so the Philistines were a people. No doubt there were people from amongst the Philistines who would join in with the people of Israel. Uh, perhaps they would marry into Israel. They would become Jews, and they would be accepted uh, amongst the people of Israel. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself had a, uh, a, a, uh, an ancestor who was Ruth, a Moabitess. And not just one, but others as well, of Gentiles who were in the line of Christ. So there was a lot of movement in those days. I, I think that we can sometimes lose the, uh, the, the sense, or perhaps we've never gained the sense, that the scriptures were written in a time where there were no borders. We didn't have borders. People were able to walk anywhere they liked on the earth. There, there was no border control. Uh, you could go anywhere you wanted to go, and you might be known by your language, uh, the Sibboleths and the Shibboleths, uh, perhaps that, that would be uh, something which could set you apart from others. But apart from that, if, if you wanted to go from India uh, through to Egypt, there was nothing to stop you doing that. Uh, and people might take umbrage or dislike to you for some reason or other. Uh, but the nationalities were not quite the same thing as we consider them today. In fact, I was just saying to Carol here, uh, we were thinking about um, the tennis player who just won the... the um, American Open there and how that she has a Chinese mother and a Romanian father and uh, there is something about Canada as well. She was either born in Canada or her early years were in Canada and yet she's British so there's uh, four different nations and there's such a mix these days it's very difficult to say what nation anybody comes from uh, and it's gone back to some kind of a similarity I suppose to the days of, of, of yore. But when we consider this then, we are considering uh, in the times when this was written and ethnicity meant something. And here is an Amalekite. Now the Amalekites had come from Esau. Uh, they were the offspring of Esau. Amalek uh, was one of uh, Esau's sons. And so the Amalekites had become on that side which were against Israel. Esau and, and Jacob themselves, well, they kind of made up, didn't they? 
But the people who followed after them, perhaps uh, the, the, the Edomites, as the Esau was also called, um, perhaps the Edomites held a grudge in the fact that they'd lost the blessing and that Jacob had stolen it. And perhaps they'd heard that story and it had come down through the ages and, uh, and they were against the Israelites from that time. The Amalekites, though, had been set themselves apart when the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt and they had come into the wilderness and they were heading towards the promised land. This is before they were rejected and the Amalekites stood to fight against them. And if you know the story, it was the time when Moses went up into the, uh, into the mountainside and held up the rod of God. And while he did so, Joshua and the, the, the men who fought the battle fought against the Amalekites and they prevailed. And when Moses got tired and the rod began to droop, they began to lose the battle. It was that time. God, from that time, said that the Amalekites were his enemy and that he would destroy them. So that's the ethnicity of this man. He was an Amalekite. But there is some significance to the Amalekites also. Saul had been told to destroy the Amalekites. There had been fights against the Amalekites already. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel 14 a kind of an overview of Saul's kingdom. Uh, Samuel, of course, being written after the time, sometimes because we're in the story, we're kind of thinking that we're going along and in the ages it's all been written down and chronicled as it happens. But uh, this is a kind of an overview of the, of the reign of Saul. In 1 Samuel 14, 47 and 48, we read, So Saul took the kingdom over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the children of Ammon, against Edom, and against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines, and whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed them, and he gathered an host and smote the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. The Amalekites were a roving people, and they would, they would smite anywhere, and they would fight against any, anyone, and so Saul had raised an army at some point and fought against them. But it was against the Amalekites that the Lord specifically said, go and wipe them out. In 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3, thus said the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go, smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But when Saul goes to fight against them, verse 9 of that same chapter, but Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. And so Saul rebelled against the Lord and didn't do what God told him to do to fight against the Amalekites. I think there's a significance that this man comes and it is this Amalekite who brings the news that Saul is dead. Makes up this story also, it seems. Most commentators, almost to a man, uh, would think that, they, that what the Amalekite has said to David is not true, uh, but the, the true account is in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And so the Lord pronounces this in that 15th chapter again, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. So Saul lost his position, lost his privilege of kingship 
the reason, one of the reasons anyway, but certainly uh, a main reason, because of all that followed on, because, because of what he had done there, that he dies on this day is because he spared the Amalekites. He spared the Amalekites. And now there is an Amalekite who wants to claim that he slew Saul. He was quick to claim this slaying of Saul. Of course, in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, we read that Saul actually slew himself. And again, there's a significance to that, surely, isn't there? Because he was to take his sword and he was to fight against the Amalekites and slay them. But he doesn't do so. He allows the king to live. And it is Samuel who takes the sword and slays Agag, not Saul. And now his sword, rather than being used as in the hand of the Lord to fight against the Lord's enemies and the enemies of his people, the sword is used on himself. He didn't do what he was told to do, and he ended up falling upon that sword himself. How careful we must be not to disobey the Lord, not to walk against his commandments. When we do so, we put ourselves in jeopardy. And when we see Saul's life and the things which followed after that, and the problems and the troubles that he had, the evil spirit from before the Lord troubling him, and and his constant fear over David, and all of the things which came upon him, even unto this day, and losing this battle in Mount Gilboa. What troubled paths we set for ourselves when we disobey the Lord. It was all because of Saul's restraint against this group, this ethnic group, the Amalekites, that the Lord said, go and slay them. But then we see something else as well, and that is Saul's resemblance to this young man who says that he has taken uh, the spear and thrust Saul through and that Saul had bidden him so to do. There is a resemblance in the fact that David says to that young man, uh, how is it that ye were not afraid? How wast thou not afraid? Verse 14, how wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now we read from the last chapter of 1 Samuel that the armor bearer who had fought with Saul, he was afraid. He would not stretch forth his hand to slay the Lord's anointed. But this Amalekite has no uh, such qualms and he is willing uh, we know that from the story that he tells not the fact that he actually did it but he's quite willing if, if that had come about he, he, he is saying I would do that in fact David takes that as the words which condemned him in verse 16 for thy mouth hath testified against thee saying I have slain the Lord's anointed you said it and whether you did it or not is not the issue here. You have said that you did this, therefore your blood is upon your own head. But Saul has a resemblance then to this Amalekite also because Saul, through all of the time since David was anointed uh, up until this present time, had sought to slay the Lord's anointed. Because David was the anointed of the Lord also. And yet Saul went forth on a number of occasions seeking to slay him. We know that he was anointed by Samuel. Uh, the, well, it's a well-known story, of course, of how that he, wasn't, he was overlooked and then brought in from the field and anointed by Samuel. But just to take one key verse 
uh, concerning Saul, 1 Samuel 20, verse 33, Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. It was determined of his father to slay David. He wants to slay the Lord's anointed, just as the Amalekite does. Irony runs all the way through the scriptures. God puts a point upon the irony of what happens to those who dig a pit and fall into it themselves. And here Saul is, well, this man says that he slays him. And so uh, although it may be uh, that this is not true, yet there is an irony in the words that an Amalekite would slay the Lord's anointed. He's, He's not interested in the Lord's anointed. He's not interested in this man at all. It's also interesting that he doesn't say anything about Jonathan. He doesn't mention Jonathan at all. He is able to tell David that Jonathan was dead, so he knew that much, but he doesn't mention him. Perhaps he knows that Saul is the enemy of David, and therefore he might receive some reward for slaying Saul, but Jonathan was beloved of David, and therefore he doesn't mention him. He is very careful not to get on the wrong side of David. And then also when we consider this Amalekite and uh, we, we see that it is Saul's responsibility. It was David's family and the families of his men who were taken by the Amalekites. Uh, the proximity of that uh, account which is given there in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel which we looked at a little while ago. Uh, that David went and he fought against them and over, overthrew them and uh, destroyed them. David had to do that because Saul had not been obedient, because Saul had not done what the Lord had told him to do. Saul had rebelled against God, and now his rebellion had come back upon his own head. We noted that last Lord's Day. We made a point of the fact that his head was removed. And we saw then that a number of things were done to Saul to show that the curse of God was upon him the second thing we see here then from this uh, portion of scripture is the enterprise his enterprise this account that he gives it it seems that the Amalekites desire is to go to David and give him the crown and the amulet and to say to him well I have done you a service and I have brought you these things and uh, how will you reward me it, it, it's a strange thing in some ways. You, you would think that he might get just as much of a reward by taking those things to the Philistines. After all, the Philistines had beheaded Saul and his sons and they had taken their heads and put them on spikes and hung their bodies on the wall of Beth Shan. And if they have done those things, then perhaps they would have rewarded him greatly for the crown and for the, uh, the amulet which he wore. Uh, just as an aside, it's interesting uh, when we read the scriptures and it's a a thing that we should always do read the scriptures how many little incidental things we find out as we read through the fact that Saul wore an amulet we don't find that anywhere else so it gives us an idea of something of the of the dress of the king at that time because it's one of the things that he brings just an aside but there are many very interesting little details and sometimes it's it's those little details that can give us something grand and, and marvelous Anyway, uh, getting back to this uh, this depiction of events then, we find that he gives a a different account to that which has been written by the chronicler. And we find that he says that he 
Well, he went, first of all, out of the camp of Israel. Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped, verse 3. David might ask the question, well, how did you escape and Saul didn't escape? Surely everybody should have been dead before the king died. How is it that you managed to get away and Saul didn't get away? Did you not protect the king? Did you not guard the king? Did you not surround the king? Did you not attack those who were attacking the king? He might easily have asked all of those questions, and although they're not uh, enunciated here in the, in the text, perhaps David did indeed think all of those things. Well, this is, there's something wrong here. If you were out of the camp of Israel, how is it that you escaped? So he asks him, though, in a, a very civil manner, how went the matter? I pray thee tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from the battle. Many of the people are also fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. David said unto the young man, the man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa. Why well, doesn't really sit in the fact that he, he escaped out of the camp of Israel. He happened by chance on Mount Gilboa. It sounds as if he was going out for a stroll after the battle was finished. And, well, he just found himself there uh, completely uh, unaware of where he was. And, oh, look, there's the king. And yet, as he happens by chance upon Mount Gilboa, he says Saul leaned upon his spear. So uh, those words can mean that he was faint, or he was cramped, uh, that he couldn't move any further. And lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. We read that when the chariots and the horsemen, uh, it doesn't actually speak about chariots and horsemen, but when they found him uh, a couple of days later, they discovered that he was dead. So they weren't right behind him. Uh, Saul had escaped to some extent, even into Gilboa. But he says that they were over against him. But that, that raises the question again, doesn't it? If they were hard after him, why is this man still standing here? If he just chanced upon this place and he has escaped out of the camp of Israel, why is he not standing beside Saul and fighting to the death? Why is he so willing to take a, take a spear and uh, thrust Saul through? And if he is able to, to thrust Saul through and escape... Why would Saul not be able to escape if he had stood and fought and allowed Saul to escape? There are lots of questions starting to come up in David's mind, I would think. David being, of course, a warrior himself and knowing how these things go. Saul leaned upon his spear. Lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me. And I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me. Now that's interesting as well. Let me go back to chapter 31 of the previous chapter. And it says, uh, as he speaks to his armor bearer in verse 4, Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. Uncircumcised. The Amalekites were uncircumcised. Why would he ask an Amalekite? He actually asked him, Who is he? Who is he first? Who art thou? And he says, I am an Amalekite. And then he says, thrust me through. That doesn't, that doesn't ring true either. So we have to come to a conclusion, I think, with the, 
uh, with a great majority of commentators that this was a made-up story, that his purpose was to ingratiate himself uh, before David and to gain something from it, either perhaps a, a court position or uh, some kind of a reward there from David. And so he says, so I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. Well, he was going to die anyway. And if he was going to die anyway, I thought I'd just help him out here. And um, that, that caused me no problems, of course. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was upon his arm and brought them hither unto my Lord. And we see the response of David that they mourn. So that's his depiction of events. So there are disparities here. He doesn't mention the armor bearer. And if the armor bearer died after Saul, why do we not hear about this Amalekite who is the one who thrust Saul through? Why do we hear that Saul fell upon his own sword? There is another account, and it's not the Amalekite's account. What happened to the armor bearer? Well, the armor bearer was willing to stand and fight by, side, by Saul's side. But once Saul was dead, what do you do then? Of course, he could have escaped, but that would have been against his honor to live while his lord was, was dead. And so he fell upon his own sword also. How sad that is that the actions of the king once again has brought about another death. Another perhaps needless death, but certainly one which was uh, not honorable, a dishonorable death to fall upon his own sword. How did he come to be on Mount Gilboa? Surely there were others who were fighting in other parts who did escape. Uh, we, again, we read that uh, verse 7 of chapter 31, when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side, Jordan, saw the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. But here he, he's actually on Mount Gilboa and he tells us that the chariots and the horsemen were right upon them. And yet he, he's safe enough. So who is this man? None of this rings true. There are disparities in his story. He happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa. He sounds as though he is just uh, browsing through the remains of battle to find what he can find. Gather what he can gather. Again, we have mentioned this, perhaps I've uh, gone ahead of myself, but there is a dereliction. Why was he not fighting? How did he survive? Why didn't he defend the king? And if these things are true that he says, and he, he says that they are, then David has those questions too. How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? A dereliction. And there was a deception. The ingratiation, first of all, to David. And why to David and not the Philistines? Well, that we can't really tell. Perhaps he was afraid of the Philistines. Perhaps the Philistines uh, were more vicious uh, than the Israelites. Perhaps he thought to find more grace amongst the Israelites than amongst the Philistines. Who can tell? But he ingratiates himself, or he seeks to ingratiate himself with David to gain something from this. And also in, in his deception is his self-importance. That he, of all the men, I, I'm an Amalekite. And of all the men that were there, it was me that Saul turned to for help in his extremity. It was me who was able to take the, 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 the spear and slay him. 
because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. Well, if he couldn't live after he was fallen, then perhaps he should have left him to die by the hand of the Lord. How careful we must be, how we deal with one and another. Which brings me finally, because most of that is, is uh, sort of building up, uh, to his end. And it's David's assessment of him. Here is a man who thinks that because he has done David a service in dispatching his enemy, because he was there in the battle, that was the right thing to be. He was in the camp of Israel. And although these things don't actually fit together, nevertheless, the thing which would be impressive to David was that he was there in the battle. David wasn't there in the battle, but he was there in the battle. Uh, that Saul spoke to him personally, and he was there at the time when Saul died. That Saul asked him to do something, and he was obedient. He did what Saul asked him to do. But he wouldn't have done it if he thought that Saul might live, but because he thought that Saul was going to die, he, was, he, he, he uh, helped him out and... Uh, brought this euthanasia, this good death upon him. And in all of these things, he is seeking to show himself to be a worthy man and, accept, uh, and acceptable to, to David, who perhaps he recognizes is mighty at this time. In fact, a, a little bit later in the scripture, we begin to see, uh, it's in First Chronicles, we will come to note that a little while, but the men who had come to David now were mighty men. That he had begun to accrue to him mighty men, the mighty men of, of, of the scripture, uh, the mighty men of David. And a little later we will, we will look at some of them, but uh, they stand out amongst all the warriors. They are like superheroes, I suppose, of the day against whom uh, many had fought and lost. They had done great exploits and they had begun to come to David even before he got to Hebron. Uh, while he was yet in Gilgal. So they were, well, were with him now while he was here. And so here we find that uh, this man seeks to, to come before David and say, well, look at all of these things that I have done. But that reminds me of something in the scripture. And I think it is a cautionary tale for us. In Matthew seven twenty-two and verse 23, we read, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That verse comes to mind because that seems to me what this young man is seeking to do. He is going to Lord David, if we can, if we can use that term. I don't think he's ever called Lord David. Uh, but nevertheless, he does call him his Lord. And he comes before David and he says, look what I have done. I have done this. I have done that. I was there in the battle. I helped Saul out. I, I, I was very careful not to do anything that was too bad. But Saul was in such a state that he was going to die anyway. And uh, I brought the bracelet and I brought the crown and I've done all of your service for you. And now I have come and I've uh, uh, obeyed you and I have bowed before you in the earth. We see there in, in verse 2, he fell to the earth and did obeisance. I am willing to serve you and uh, I have done all of these things. And now he is seeking for David to accept him. Just like what the Lord Jesus says. There are so many who think that because they have done this and they have done that, when they stand before God, God will accept them. But they haven't done the will of God. 
They haven't done what God required them to do. They have not actually served the Lord at all. Because he will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And that was what this young man had done. He had worked iniquity. If his story was true in some way, and you might find uh, some way of correlating these two things and, uh, and saying, well, you know, this could have happened and it might have worked that way. And it's possible what he said is true. Some have sought to uh, bring these two accounts together. Or whether he simply has made it up, he is guilty before David. There is no salvation for our works. Whatsoever we may seek to do to please God, nothing will please God except that we honor the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in obedience to him. Had David sent the man out to do this task then perhaps we might see something but no and david mourns after saul and mourns after jonathan and he says how are the mighty fallen how are the mighty fallen the beauty of israel is slain upon thy high places how are the mighty fallen Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thy high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. How is the Lord grieved with those who have not trusted in him? who have not honoured him. You see, the whole point of David's words here is, this was the Lord's anointed. And you've slain him. There is no one who can slay their Lord's anointed except the Lord himself. Without a direct command from the Lord, I wonder what damage we do as we seek to work our own way, as we refuse to hear the commands of God, as we seek to show forth how good we are, rather than come in and say, I am a sinner, I'm worthy of anything, but the Lord had mercy on me. May the Lord bless these thoughts and let's consider our hearts where we are before Christ. Our Father, we pray that thou wast bless our meditations upon the word of God. And you're sad for this man. He had no idea what he was dealing with. He didn't realize, Lord, the, the honor which David had, even for a man who sought to slay him, even for a man who was not worthy of the position that he held. But he honoured him nonetheless. But this Amalekite had no comprehension of such things. And seeks to come with his own works. Expecting to be received. Accepting, uh, expecting to be rewarded. Or there will be many in the day of the Lord. Who will expect many things because they have done this or they have done that. But they have never 
loved the Lord's anointed. So, Father, we pray that thou wilt challenge our hearts and help us to proclaim the anointed of the Lord, Jesus Christ, that there might be many who we come across in our lives who will love the Lord's anointed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.